Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. New York City is a preeminent global city, serving as the headquarters for hundreds of multinational firms and a world-renowned cultural hub for fashion, art, and music. It is among the most multicultural cities in the world and also one of the most segregated cities in the United States. The people that make this global city function, immigrants, people of color, and the working class, reside largely in the so-called outer boroughs, outside the corporations, neon, and skyscrapers of Manhattan. In A People's Guide to New York City, published by University of California Press in 2022, Carolina Bank Munoz, Penny Lewis, and Emily Thompson Molina expand the scope and scale of traditional guidebooks, providing an equitable exploration of the diverse communities throughout the city. Carolina Bank Munoz is professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and at the city. University of New York Graduate Center. Penny Lewis is Professor of Labor Studies at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, great. So to get started, could you each please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work together? Why don't we start with uh, Carolina? Sure, thanks so much. Um, So I got interested in this project uh, 10 years ago uh, when I was on a trip to LA to visit my family in LA. And I went to uh, Roman's bookstore in Pasadena to listen to Laura Pulido uh, and Wendy Chang and Laura Barencroft talk about A People's Guide to Los Angeles. And I was really inspired by... um, this idea of a a guidebook, they're all geographers, right? So I was really inspired by this idea um, of a guidebook as an intellectual project, as an alternative, uh, as a way of creating um, an alternative vision of cities, um, of claiming rights to the city. Uh, And and so I asked, after that talk, I asked, I asked uh, Wendy Chang, I said, so are there plans to do other guidebooks in other cities? And Wendy said, yes, we're hoping to make this a series. Uh, do you want to do New York? And I said, how should it be to do New York City? Um, and 10 years later, here we are. <laughs> it turns out it was pretty hard. Uh, and so when I came back from that trip, not being a native New Yorker, I thought, who could, uh, who could I get involved in this project? Um, and I reached out to Penny, uh, and then I'll I'll let Penny talk about her. Terrific. Her yes, it is. It is terrific, and I feel like the the email from Carolina felt overdetermined in that I am a native New Yorker, third generation. You know, I grew up with a dad who every time we took a walk anywhere, you know, regaled me with the stories of, you know, what used to be there and, you know, what should be there and why it's a problem that what's there now is there. Um, and, uh, and I also teach a class called New York city work, culture and politics. Um, so I came at this project with a lot of personal 
and political interest. Um, I've also been really active my whole life in New York in various social justice and labor movements. And, you know, part of what made the LA Guide, you know, so exciting was that it was really foregrounding the ways in which social movements make a city, you know, that that everything that we see, see around us in the city and that we experience in the city is is really a product of social struggle. And we don't always know it and we it's not always there on the surface. And it's certainly not something that we read into the physical landscape in any kind of, you know, immediate or natural way. But the LA guide and I think our guide encourages, you know, people to see the city that way. Um, and I certainly grew up understanding the city that way and experienced it that way. So it's been exciting to contribute, you know, and create this book with Carolina and Emily. Um, Emily is Emily uh, uh, Thompson. Right. And, That's um, right. Right. And uh, so speaking of the kind of vision for this book, uh, Carolina, you mentioned in the beginning of of your book that many other guidebooks to New York draw attention to the Astor family and its legacy. But quote, uh, but you write that um, if you know where to look and how to listen, different stories can be found as well. What do you mean by that? Um, so I think that uh, what is known about New York City and what is highlighted about New York City is glitz and glamour and consumption, right? And even um, in the certainly in the traditional guidebooks, that's the case. Uh, and even in the alternative guidebooks, uh, those guidebooks tend to focus on uh, or overly focus on Manhattan, right? As as kind of the center of of the city. So I think what we mean by that is is listening, right? And hearing the stories of, you know, quote unquote, real people. <laughs> Not that the Astros <laughs> aren't real, but um, working class New Yorkers, the folks that make the city move, the folks that make the city come alive. Um, and that those stories are everywhere. You know, I mean, Penny just kind of alluded to that in terms of her dad, right, telling these stories about what was here and what was there. And you can, um, that happens all the time. I mean, I, almost every time I ride the subway and I get into a conversation with somebody and they say, oh, what do you do? Oh, I teach at Brooklyn College. Brooklyn College! My grandmother went to Brooklyn College, (laughs) right? My uncle went to Brooklyn College, my great-grandmother went to Brooklyn, you know. So the, the stories of people who make the city, that's that's what you get by listening. Right, right. Yeah, we – oh, I don't know if I should come in also. Please, but I, please I feel very that free that to jump in. <laughs> that opening story, you know, we, we begin the book looking at the Empire State Building, right? And, you know, that – is a kind of, it's one of the types of sites that we have in the book, you know, which is an iconic site. Everybody thinks they know about the Empire State Building. You know, it's, everyone can see it. It's such a symbol of the whole city. And, um, you know, we try to pull out and ask questions about the people who built it, right? And and when it was built and why it was, you know, built when it was built. Um, and we end up taking a journey from Midtown Manhattan to Brooklyn, where there's now a hairdresser's, um, 
I don't, you know, or a beauty salon. I don't know what we would call it um, <laughs> uh, on Nevin Street, where there used to be a bar called the Wigwam, and it was called the Wigwam because it was a bar that served uh, a, a a Mohawk, a Native Canadian Mohawk community, the Kanawake, who uh, iron workers who lived in the neighborhood and who were. The, some of the most essential workers in building not just the Empire State Building, but Rockefeller Center and a lot of other buildings in New York. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that if you are asking different kinds of questions about the monuments of New York, you end up going in completely different directions and landing in the completely different spaces in New York. Um, and I think, you know, just rethinking these connections um, as, as, Carolina was saying, between like, what's at the center? What's at the periphery? You know, uh, what makes New York City so famous and amazing? You know, is it the Astors whose property was built in order to put the Empire State Building there? Or, you know, is it the the Mohawk iron workers? Um, right. And, and so kind of along those lines, I'm curious, does your book focus on the same sites as other guidebooks, but just tells different stories about those locations? Or does it also include sites that are usually ignored? I think it does. It does three things. It, it does. Um, it talks about, we spend a lot of time talking about the layers, right? And peeling through the layers of these sites. So some of the sites are uh, common sites with alternative stories, right? So like the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. Um, some sites are vanished sites, right? Um, sites that no longer exist in that location, like the Silver Palace restaurant, which was the first um Chinese restaurant to be unionized in China, in Manhattan, Chinatown, which is now a hotel, right? Um, and some sites are just ignored. Um, so, so I think those are the three kinds of sites that we, we cover in the book. Right. Uh, I'm curious if you could, just to follow up, Caroline, if you could give a few examples of sites that, um, that are uh, significant uh, to the um, New York history that are no longer exist, that are covered in your book? So, the, you know, besides the, the Silver Palace is the one that very quickly came to mind. Penny, do you have other of the disappeared sites? Um, well, I mean, and not necessarily, of you know, uh, significance to New York in that people don't know that it existed. But, you know, we have like the Margaret Sanger's first, um, you know, the very first place that uh, contraception advice um, was shared in New York, her first clinic in Brownsville, Brooklyn. You know, it it was the very first time that someone publicly opened the doors to talk to people about, you know, contraceptive health. Um, and of course it was shut down and she was arrested and, you know, it, it, it didn't last long. Um, but that's, you know, one kind of vanished site that we have, uh, you know, we often, there are also sites like the, uh, I often pick this site because it's so close to where I grew up, 
but the Village E Cinema is one of the very few, it, it's one of the only remaining theaters um, that used to be part of what was known as the Yiddish Rialto on the Lower East Side, you know, where there were a lot of Jewish theaters and it was at the center of the, of the um, Yiddish theater scene. Um, and it's still there. And but but all around it, you know, are the vanished sites of what had been a you know a really thriving community. Right, right. And um, um, sorry. And go just ahead. one more example: Queens is the storefront, uh, the storefront museum, right? Which um, was this um, accessible like center for Afrocentric philosophy. Um, and was eventually closed uh, and, and, you know, so now that building no longer exists. It's part of like York College. The collection is now part of York College. Mm. Yeah, there, there are dozens of spaces like this in the, in the book, or at least, yeah, dozens. I'm looking over. <laughs> right, right. And I'm, I'm curious, Penny, uh, if you could think of, uh, again, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but I'm, I'm curious <laughs> if you could think of uh, examples from the book of places that, are, that still exist, but are you know, really uh, largely ignored by kind of traditional um, uh, New York um, guidebooks. Sure. I mean, we, for example, one of the themes in our book that we don't, um, that you wouldn't normally see in a guidebook is questions of social reproduction, right? Like how do New Yorkers live, right? And we need education, we need healthcare, um, and we need food to live. So, you know, one site that uh, you would never find in a guidebook that we include is Hunts Point, Um which is the food distribution center for uh, it's it's one of a few, but it is the one that brings in like a quarter of all the fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, you know, it sits on hundreds of acres in in the Bronx um, on the Hunts Point Peninsula, and it's. You know, it's it's notable. It's got like the fish market there is second only to Tokyo's fish market. You know, in the world, the Fulton Fish Market moved up from Manhattan to to join the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center um, a while ago. So, you know, that site tells a story about how we get fed, um, but it also importantly tells a story of the environmental degradation experienced by you know, the tens of thousands of people who live in Hunts Point and who are now, you know, impacted by the trucks that go in and out all the time, you know, by the expressway that cuts off the peninsula, um, you know, by the dirty industry that, you know, is developed around a, a site like this. Um, so, so that's the kind of story and the kind of place that we don't think guidebooks normally focus on. Another good example of that is on Staten Island at the Amazon warehouse, right? Which recently unionized and uh, very fortuitously <laughs> is in our book. <laughs> books aren't going to send people, you know, few guidebooks send people to Staten Island. And period. Then, <laughs> period, right? And then uh, in Staten Island, going to a warehouse seems like an odd uh, place to send people. 
right? But then it, it turns out it's, you know, it was the center of lots of health and safety struggles um, during COVID and walkouts and labor organization and an independent union now. Right. Clearly a, a, an important part of the vibrancy of New York and certainly uh, the vibrancy of, of working class New York. Um uh, Carolina, I'm curious, what role does disappearance play in the life of New York and in the stories your book tells? So I, you know, it it it's certainly a theme uh, in the book. And there's there's another great book, uh, Vanished New York, um, that talks a lot more about disappearance. Um, I think we were really trying to strike that balance Um of the three kinds of sites that, you know, I, I just talked about, but certainly, you know, part of the landscape of the city, part of the geography of the city is that it's, it's a city that um, gets kind of recreated because we are bound, we're island islands, right? So it's, you, you build up, you tear down, you build up, you tear down. Um, So that inevitably leads to disappearance, Right. Um, and, it, and and these layers that, you know, I've been talking about that, you know, the site was once this, it's now this, then it went back to being this other thing, you know. Um, so I think that unlike some other cities, for example, Los Angeles, um, where, you know, you also see disappearance, the the geography of New York makes that much more um, felt, Right. And experienced in the daily life of New Yorkers, like you walk, you know, you're walking around the city and you're like, oh, that used to be this and that used to be that um, in ways that you don't it, it doesn't feel the same way in other cities. Yeah. And I think it's also the politics of, you know, and and um, economy of New York and, and also its history. But, you know, New York is one of the oldest and, you know, has always, almost always been the most populous city in the United States. But unlike other historical cities, it, it really doesn't give a damn about history. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's been a real issue in New York. And, you know, it's pretty reflective of how much, you know, private wealth and capitalism and real estate wealth, you know, makes this city um, what it is, you know, for better and, and, I would say more often worse, but, um, you know, so it's profitable to always put up new stuff and, you know, it's great to always be at the cutting edge of everything and the destruction that takes place here, you know, has, has really been concerted and rampant, you know, and I, I mean, I think most of us who are New Yorkers know the story of how like Penn Station, the beautiful Penn Station was torn down. And that's what kind of awoke, you know, in the consciousness of preservationists, the fact that New York should pay some attention to its history, but that historical preservation movement, and, you know, we could talk about that, but, you know, that I think runs counter to the general trend that Carolina is describing, you know, um, and there are real tensions in the city, I think, you know, around, around those uh, questions. 
yeah, I know my uncle, who's a, a, a native New Yorker and uh, a real theater lover. Uh, often when we would go watch uh, shows on Broadway, we'd pass some building and he would like, you know, almost kind of cry. Oh, that, you know, there was a great uh, um, old you know, historical theater. And then they tore it down. And here's, you know, now this ugly uh, you know, building was put up in, in, in its stead. Um, and it seems like. Uh, there's a, a continuous process of tearing down old buildings and putting up things that often uh, don't seem to compare in, in terms of the, the beauty, the aesthetic, uh, and obviously the history of the buildings that were that were torn down. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you, you said that there's... There, there, at, at some point, there began to be a consciousness around the need to preserve um, uh, historical buildings in New York. W- when did that begin and, and how has that effort uh, you know, played out so far? Um, I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, and we don't talk about this in the book, I think it was 1961 that Penn Station was torn down and the Landmark Preservation Society, and again, I might be getting the specific titles wrong here, um, was started in earnest. So it, it, it really did start with the tearing down of the old Penn Station um, and the replacement with what we have now, the Madison Square Garden um, complex, which there's now a new train station in New York City called the Moynihan train station in the old post office that is trying to kind of, you know, recapture some of the glory of the, the old pen. But, but I think most people would strongly agree that it doesn't, um, (laughs) even if it's nice. Uh, Anyway, so I think that's when it started. But what's unusual about that movement, and I don't feel really expert here, is that, you know, what, and I think our, but I think our book comments on this is like, what gets called important and historical is going to be the product of social struggles and power itself, right? And so, Unfortunately, you know, many neighborhoods that get like the historical markings around them are often first white neighborhoods or often first rich neighborhoods, you know, are often first neighborhoods where the people who live there have the social power to demand the preservation. Right. Um, And so just getting those landmarked districts and getting that landmark status is always a struggle. Um, you know, one one site we have in the book uh, that talks about the other, you know, the the, the losing side of this is um, Dorothy Day, who um, people may be familiar with. She was the one of the founders of Catholic Worker. She spent the, her last years in Staten Island. Um, she they they Catholic Worker had farms on Staten Island. I mean, it's a really fascinating story. But she lived in this area, you know, on, along the coast that was known as like, I think they were called like the Spanish houses or something or the Spanish cabins. I'm forgetting the name. Um, they had been run by a bunch of Spanish anarchists in the earlier part of the 20th century. And then Dorothy Day lived there and people wanted it to be a historical landmark, right? I mean, here's Dorothy Day, incredibly important person, you know, like up for canonization, you know, like that <laughs> that level of important personage and a beautiful historic site, which, you know, because there was a real estate developer who wanted to come in and make some beachfront property in Staten Island, you know, so smart during climate change. Um, <laughs> 
you know, got the rights to the area and tore down, you know, the, the bungalows, that's what it was, the Spanish bungalows, um, before, you know, the, the decision could be made by the city. And, and of course, you know, they were going to win anyway, right? So that, so there's always struggle in relationship to this, you know, um, what gets counted as, as landmarked, but um, it's, it's definitely uh, been around for, for over half a century now, that push. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is in Brooklyn, the, the, um, the Duffield Street homes that were linked to the Underground Railroad. And one of them, you know, there were, I think there were three and, um, or two, and one of them is no longer. And one of them, they're still fighting for one of them. So, so that is a, a common, yeah, a common story throughout. Right. And uh, to step back a little bit, uh, historically, Carolina, could you tell us when and why were the five boroughs united into the greater New York? Uh, that's great. I think it was 1894. You're, you're getting... 1898. 1898. Well, maybe I think Penny should answer this one. Sure. Penny, take it away. Um, so New York was... Uh, you know, just New York's Manhattan and the Bronx and Brooklyn was its own thriving city. Um, in fact, it was, I think the, like today it would be like the fourth largest city in New York city if it was a city. Um, but, and, and Queens was its own kind of collection of towns. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't have an urban center the way that, that Brooklyn did. Um, and in fact, that's why Queens, those of us who are familiar with it know that, you actually, your address is not Queens, New York, it's your neighborhood. So you live in like, you know, Forest Hills or Kew Gardens or Astoria. Um, and that's how you sign off in, in your Queens addresses. Um, anyway, uh, so the city was united finally in 1898. Um, and very much, I mean, we describe it as almost a kind of colonial enterprise of Manhattan, you know, taking over the outer boroughs, recognizing that, you know, having greater land, uh, you know, more space, especially for, you know, the extremely expanding population of, of immigrants and poor people to move out, you know, they, they saw it as moving out of, of Manhattan to create more space. Um, and to create more space for industry and uh, development um, for the purposes of Manhattan, <laughs> um, you know, was very much the kind of vision of it. And so there was a lot of support for unification from within Manhattan and a lot more resistance, actually, like from Brooklyn, um, which was concerned that its you know power and status would be diminished as it was. Um, <laughs> uh, it was also, you know, there were also big cultural differences between the leaders, you know, the, the political elites of the different cities. You know, Brooklyn was much more Protestant. Um, New York was much more Catholic. Uh, Brooklyn had a lot more well-to-do people. You know, Manhattan had, had many more impoverished people, et cetera. Right. And speaking of some of these internal tensions, how does the tension, be, uh, Carolina, hopefully this question will stick. How did the, the tension between cosmopolitanism and provincialism play out in New York City? Well, I, you know, that's a great that's one of the great themes of the book, right, that even though from the outside, everybody looks at New York City and thinks, wow, what a cosmopolitan place. 
the reality of New York City is that everybody lives in their four square blocks. That um, I have students who have never been outside of Manhattan. I, I mean, I have never been outside of Brooklyn, who have never been on the subway, who live in Mill Basin or uh, um, Gravesend, and who, who the, in my class, it was the first time I made them take the subway, right? So uh, people are very rooted uh, in their neighborhoods, Um and sometimes that can uh, reflect a, a kind of provincialism and, and a kind of conservatism also, right? That, oh, this is what I know. These are the, I'm living with people I'm familiar with culturally, uh, in terms of language, in terms of ethnicity. Um, and even though we think of New York City as this incredibly diverse place, which it is on the whole, um, it is also a deeply segregated place, right? And so um, those things are constantly in tension with each other. You can can have access to incredible sources of culture, museums and art and music and uh, theater um, and street art, you know, in, in this incredibly kind of cosmopolitan way. And you can also, uh, be neighbors with people who think really differently and who don't want to leave the city and who, you know, literally, you know, don't leave their neighborhoods. Right. 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 Uh, definitely. And um, Penny, how does the tension between the private and public sectors play out in New York city? Um, so, I mean, New York is, is pretty extraordinary and I think, we argue somewhat exceptional um, in the United States context for both having extreme power in the hands of private citizens and privately wealthy people, right? Um, And at the same time, having a really robust uh, public sector and public infrastructure that has been, you know, won over you know, a century of struggle. (laughs) And um, even when it is underfunded and under attack, uh, it, it nevertheless persists, you know, so for example, um, we have the City University of New York that we all, you know, teach at, and that's amazing. I mean, there's no comparable City University system, I, I think, in the world, right? I mean, 25 campuses and, you know, low cost, what used to be free, entitled public higher education, um, you know, up until 1975. We have public hospitals, um, you know, a really robust public hospital system. We obviously have the most developed mass transit of any city in the country. Um, We have a lot of public space. We have a lot of, you know, open public access to all part, so many parts of New York. Um, you know, there's one private park, Gramercy Park, <laughs> and there are some. There's another one. That's right. There's another one. Um, but and there are some. You know, like there are some privatized spaces uh, that you know, like the far end of the Rockaways. What's the name of that community that is like somewhat of a gated community? Seagate is that? I don't. I don't remember what it's called. We don't want to 
bad mouth Seagate. <laughs> um, but you know, there. Are, but in general, like much of New York is is highly like public in both you know the institutions that exist here, and and I would also say in the lifestyle that we create. Um, so, but. At the same time, you know, for 12 years at the beginning of the 21st century, the richest person in New York City was also our mayor. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's just the amount of... Michael Bloomberg. Exactly. Michael Bloomberg. So uh, the amount of power that the private sector exercises is also, you know, phenomenal. And you can't walk around New York without seeing, you know, the names of... You know, there's the, you know, all the Carnegie libraries and Carnegie Hall. There's, you know, the Astor wing of this place and the, you know, those terrible Purdue Pharma people, um, the Sacklers, you know, who still have their name on one wing at the Met, um, but used to have a lot more, Uh, you know, all over New York, you you see that kind of um, power uh, and you certainly see it in our in the politics of New York as well. All right. Speaking of the politics, uh, Carolina, is New York City a place where, uh, quote, anything goes? In other words, what is the relationship between the freedoms and the repression found in the city? Um, another big central tension, right, that uh, in some ways it is uh, anything goes, right, that people... Um, you know, don't bat an eye lid at lots of things they see on a daily basis. Um, uh, things that we used to call in sociology, you know, kind of norm violating <laughs> um, that just become part of the fabric of the city. Uh, and at the same time, it, it is a place, it is a heavy, heavily, a, a place of heavy repression. Um Police repression, uh, uh, police in schools, <laughs> you know, um, when I've had family visit from Chile, the first thing they comment on is, why are there metal detectors in schools? Why are there security guards in schools? Um, uh, in public schools. That protest, you know, the way that protest is is policed and and repressed and the barricades and how people are penned in um, are all great examples. And throughout history, right, we see examples of tremendous um, repression uh, for 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 protest um, in the city. So. At the same time, you know, um, so there's a lot of personal liberties while a lot of uh, structures, right, of of repression. Yeah. Right. Uh, go ahead. Penny, do you want to add to that? Well, I just want to, I mean, because I 100% agree with what Carolina just said, but I, I would want to play up a little bit the kind of anything goesness because New York... And again, I think this in part stems from the kind of public nature of our lives here and the extent of interchange that is both, you know, forced by the city um, and its geography and and our patterns of interaction um, and also welcomed by the city. You know, I mean, the like we, we have an incredibly uh, diverse population from, you know, all over the world um, at all times. It. So we've had like amazing, explosively creative 
movements come out of this city, right? Um, you know, which to me are the, you know, artistic movements. I mean, hip hop, you know, punk rock, like salsa, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just on the musical front. You know, I mean, like if you look at like the amazing innovations people have made in all different arts and, you know, learning and politics, I just think that, you know, New York has has given all that up. At the same time, it has, you know, lived under the kinds of repression that that Carolina talked about. Right. Um, And and of course, some of the, maybe it's ironic or maybe not, but some of the the protest movements that you were kind of alluding to were themselves protests against police repression. (laughs) You know, so they were in direct response to police uh, uh, repression. Uh, I think of Stonewall, if you think of um, um, various protest movements that were literally responding to the overreach and, 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 and violence on the part of the, the you know, local government um, against you know, various um, you know, minorities and, and disenfranchised populations. Absolutely. And we tell the stories of places like Stonewall and also Black Lives Matter, right? The, um, you know, horrific death of Eric Garner in in Staten Island, which, you know, was part of the earlier rendition of Black Lives Matter movement. Um, So, yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, Carolina, could you give uh, our listeners a sense of the breadth and scope of the entries in the book? So one thing that was really important to us uh, was to give a view of the whole city. Uh, And that means uh, talking not just about Manhattan, but of of Queens, of the Bronx, of Staten Island, of Brooklyn. Um, And thinking through like decentering the center, right? So even though there's a lot of sites in Manhattan, most uh, of the book is made up of sites every in all the other boroughs, right? The, the, the other boroughs kind of combined make up the bulk of the site. So that was um, an important intervention for us because Manhattan is so highlighted in other guidebooks and even alternative guidebooks, radical guidebooks. Um, and uh, we really wanted to, so so geographically, you know, we wanted to cover all, all five boroughs, but in terms of um, the kinds of sites, we also wanted to be thinking about um the various movements that have uh, sprung up in the in the city, social movements, labor movements, um, early movements for what we now call the rights to the city, housing, health care, uh, but also just arts, <laughs> right, culture, um, uh, racial and ethnic communities, uh, education, the book covers a lot and and we had a lot of debate and discussion about the kinds of stories we wanted to tell and which which locations were the best place to tell those stories um, without being too repetitive. We also wanted uh, to make it 
And, you know, the L.A. guy, L.A. is a harder city to get around, right? New York, you have this incredible opportunity to take public transit, to walk around. Um, so we really wanted to get people to walk around with it um, and create clusters of sites so that if you're going to Brownsville, you can, you know, you're not just going to one place. Brownsville is you know, it's it's not that hard to get to, but it's not that easy. And so you want to go to the Margaret Singer uh, birth control clinic and the, the Brooklyn Labor Lyceum and Weeksville, which is not too far away. And so um, really thinking about the walkability and the clusters also. Right. I'm, I'm curious if you could just um, give an example of a particular um, theme or, 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 or concept that you wanted, um, people to, to get access to and where you thought, well, there's multiple physical locations that could tap into, you know, that history or that idea. And then, you know, you decided to choose one site uh, as opposed to another, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, can, I mean, I could say, I mean, you know, one, and this might come from like the the bias that certainly Carolina and I bring to this, but like labor struggles in New York City, right? I mean, you know, turn of the century of the of the 19th to 20th century uh, labor unrest. There are so many different places, um, you know, we could pick to, to look at it. And, you know, we were compelled, I think, for very good reasons to pick, you know, Tompkins Square to tell part of that story because it was at Tompkins Square that, you know, some of the earliest um, actually police riots to speak to what you were talking um, to Salman, you know, of the police repressing a labor rally there. Um, But I would say that, you know, we chose two different um, other places. uh, And again, of like many, many, one was the um, tram, the tramway strike that Jocelyn Wills wrote for us. Um, I think it's called Trams. Was it the tra- trolley? Uh, trolley? The trolley the, strike. The trolley strike. See, I, I'm getting my transportation. <laughs> um, you know, a trolley strike that took place in Brooklyn, um, and also a, a story of um, of uh, in Astoria the Steinway Piano Factory um, and the company town that was created there by the Steinway Company. Um, And we chose those sites in part along the same lines as what Carolina's uh, talking about to get us out of Manhattan, you know, to recognize that, you know, these struggles take place in all the boroughs um, and to highlight the different experiences of workers during that whole long, important stretch, you know, that you could basically say, you know, of industrialization and before labor unions really came to be. And by picking these three sites to touch on that super long story, I think we were able to kind of tell that whole story, um, you know, without, uh, without um, sacrificing a ton of it, um, but, but not being overly repetitive. Um. Right. F- fascinating. Um, I'm curious, Penny, were there any uh, sites that um, that you really wished you were able to include, but for some reason they didn't make the cut? I should be more prepared to remember this because there were a <laughs> bunch of cuts. I mean, so what, what I'll say is there were many sites that 
like, for example, Max's Kansas City, right, which was a club um, that, you know, was very important to both like the art scene in New York, the abstract expressionists and, and mid 20th century artists all hung out there. And then, you know, Velvet Underground and the music scene at Max's was was key. We told the story of CBGBs, so we don't tell the story of Max's, right? Um, but it was it was an amazing site, and you know we developed it. Uh, you know there we there were other things that ended up on the cutting room floor, um, the theater fire, right in in Brooklyn, a wonderful site that we ended up not including. Um, you know, Turtle Bay had had some interesting stories that we developed. Um, and that was where the UN was created. And and again, it was this question of urban development and urban renewal. But we told that story by looking at San Juan, you know, Hill and the development of Lincoln Center. So, you know, you, you make a choice about which which one you're going to pick. Um, but they were very similar stories. I don't know, Carolina, if you have others. Yeah, I was just going to say there, you know, we also did that with like, uh, like important people like Malcolm X, where are we going to put the Malcolm X story? Like Malcolm X needs to be in our book. Is it going to be the Audubon? That's kind of a well-known story. You know, the house that that he lived in in Queens is, is like a subway and a bus ride. It's really in, in deep in Queens. There are people who live there. And there's a little plaque. Are we really going to send people, you know, are we going to publish there? No, we ended up um, with the Malcolm X story. Uh, Clarence Taylor wrote it um, at the 28th precinct, right? So there were lots of discussions about where we tell, uh, where it makes sense, right? Um, In terms of lots of criteria um, to tell particular stories, whether that's geography or wanting to pick up um, something that people might not already know. Right, right. It seems like you have to have a balance between saying something new or, or, or different, you know, that hasn't been said, but also connecting it to the history and places that people know. If people pick up your book and they don't recognize any of the sites in your book, like this seems not like an alternative book. It seems like an alternate universe, you know, <laughs> so there needs to be some kind of balance there. Um, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, Carolina, I'm, I'm curious, are there particular themes that emerge from reading the stories, uh, of the sites in your book? Um, so I think some of the themes we've, you know, we've talked about, um, and some of the tensions we've talked about, but for me personally, uh, I think one thing that came out of, I, I worked on a lot of the Brooklyn sites and one thing that came out for me that um, even though in the back of my mind, I knew I didn't really know to the, you know, the extent to which it was true is just black history in Brooklyn, you know? Um, so, and, and the richness of it and the, and the variation and variety of it. <laughs> so from, you know, school board boycotts to, you know, um, colored school number two to Weeksville. Um, uh, one of my favorite stories is the, the Ebinger 
baking company uh, boycotts um, that were initiated by the um, uh, by Core in in the 1960s, right? So Ebinger's is this famous bakery in, on the East Coast. It's famous for its you know Brooklyn blackout cake, um, and uh, and they weren't hiring. Uh, Black people, they weren't hiring uh, Puerto Ricans, and CORE decided, you know, this is, we're going to make this a campaign, and we're going to boycott Ebingers, and and uh, they developed these strategies. They they had pickets. They had pickets at, at the actual bakeries, and, and when those pickets weren't so successful, they went to the depot, and they blocked trucks, you know, um, and eventually they forced the company, right? I mean, not being a union, not being a labor organization, um, but deeply focused on labor and the working, you know, the a- access to work for people of color, um, they forced Avengers to have to sit down, to have to revisit their hiring practices. You know, it was a mixed bag in terms of success. Like they had some su- some wins and some losses, Um but at the end of the day, this this group of radicals was able to force, you know, this company to sit down and and um, essentially bargain over employment. Um, and today, you can still see it. Like you can go to Albemarle Road and look at the depot. It's now a Cube Smart. But when you when you look up at the sign, it still says Avengers, and you can be you know um, transported back to that to that incredible history, you know, the, where the trucks left the, um, you know, the depot is where the trucks go into <laughs> today. So you, you, the photo that we have in the book, uh, you look at it and then you look at the building and you still see the same entrances. Right. And um, so for me, it was just like really incredible to, to, uh, to see and to write about and to be in these places where you could connect so directly to history um, and, you know, almost feel like you were there or feel like you were part of that movement because, you know, the structure exists and um, yeah. Yeah. So I would say that for me, that's, that was one of the, the most important themes coming out of Brooklyn. Right. Well, that really is remarkable. Um, um, and to be able to be, as you said, transported back to a different era in New York City history is is really a, a very special and, and potentially, um, you know, an experience that people could really grow from. You know, you feel like if you're reading you know, the history books about the civil rights movement or, you know, radical movements in America's past. And then you could go to a building where something related to that history actually happened. And you feel, like you said, a a kind of deep personal connection to that site and then potentially to those struggles, to those, um, those concerns. Uh, That really is uh, a very special thing to do. Um, So speaking of personal attachments, I'm wondering if I could ask each of you if you have a particular favorite site from your book uh, that you want to highlight. Why don't we start with Penny? Hmm. Um, You know, I always, I feel like I've already spoken to some of my favorite sites. Like I love um, Dorothy Day and I love 
the uh, Village East Cinema and Hunts Point. <laughs> but, you know, one, one thing I was thinking about when talking about Hunts Point, and it was mentioned by um, Carolina, like in terms of fights for the right to the city, um, we have two sites in the book that tell stories of the Young Lords, um, which was a, a revolutionary Puerto Rican group um, started in 1969, kind of, uh, maybe it was end of 68, but um, kind of some very similar to the Black Panthers. Uh, and they were not around for a very long time, but they had a really um, disproportionate impact, I would say, on the on the city um, in, in a bunch of directions. There's a wonderful um, book that I would recommend um, that uh, came out somewhat recently um, that if folks, you know, would want to learn more, uh, Johanna Fernandez's The Young Lords, A Radical History is a really great book. But anyway, so the sites I would, I would pick are um, uh, Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, um, where The Young Lords took it over. It was a public hospital that was, you know, under deep cuts and disarray and not serving the community. They had an occupation. It was successful. Uh, the entire community, you know, got involved, backed them up. Um, a new hospital was built as a result. Um, and another similar site known as the Garbage Offensive in East Harlem, where the Young Lords listening to the community, listening to the anger people felt about the extent of, you know, lack of garbage collection. This is a period when a lot of buildings had been torn down in East Harlem. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of abandoned lots and, you know, infestations and garbage everywhere. New housing projects sprung up, you know, community really under pressure from all this development and redevelopment, but a lack of services. And so the young people in the Young Lords took the brooms from the sanitation department and started cleaning up the street. And they piled garbage in the middle of all these intersections in, the, in uh, East Harlem to make a spectacle of the city's neglect. And uh, in doing that, they won garbage access. I mean, you know, they won garbage pickup and, and they won the attention, you know, to the community that it deserved. So I, I love those sites because I feel like we often in New York imagine ourselves powerless, you know, against the, you know, the powers that be, and we're not, you know, and there are so many fantastic stories of people claiming, you know, the right to a, a livable, healthy, you know, clean city and, and making that happen through their own self-activity. Right, right. That is really uh, fascinating. Carolina, do you have a favorite site to highlight? So I would say, you know, Avengers was definitely one of my favorites. Um, and I would also say uh, Fresh Kills Park in Staten Island is is another favorite just because it has this incredible uh, story of being, you know, a garbage dump for, for many, many, many years and to transform, um, you know, to... It, it it also just highlights how Staten Island was seen by the the central city, right? That the, as a place to dump garbage, the the city, you know, the city's garbage, um, and for that to be transformed into this incredible, um, enormous, uh, you know, 
fresh, beautiful park today uh, that people can enjoy and be in nature in, um, I think is an incredible story. Um, similar, similar to that story is, is, is also Flushing Meadows, right? And the, the, um, the Valley of the Ashes. <laughs> um, so, and again, I think one of the things that, that Penny had highlighted is just like, why, why did that happen? Because of people, because people pushed for it, because people said it was unacceptable, right? It's unacceptable to, um, to be living with this garbage dump, right? Uh, this, this should be a public park. Um, so I would say those, those two are, are some of my favorites. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you for that. All right. Here's the last question, Penny. Um, um, what do you hope readers will take away from your book? Mm, um, well, I mean, so many things. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I hope that people who read the book, either if they're in New York or if they're not in New York, see the city differently. I mean, see it, you know, literally through like different glasses, you know, um, either as they walk around or as they imagine it. You know, I think there's, there are a lot of, and I want to say, I feel like our book is in a really proud tradition and I would feel honored to join it of people who have tried to make visible the hidden New York and, you know, and show it to people. But I think one of the contributions we make is this question of social power and, um, and the volatility and, you know, and struggle that goes into the creation of what is both great and terrible about New York. Um, and so I, I would hope that people appreciate that, appreciate the flux, you know, and how the flux, you know, we often, you asked us earlier about this kind of vanishing question. I think there's a, you know, there's a kind of tragedy that we associate with vanishing, right? A loss, uh, you know, uh, and of course there is tragedy, but there's also a lot of hope, you know, in the flux and a lot of hope in the, um, the instabilities that get created in the social struggles that we see around us. And I would hope that, you know, New Yorkers in particular maybe see that hope and see those lines to, you know, to power and, um, and to, uh, I don't know, to, to, to victory for the kind of New York we want to live in, um, you know, that that's what you would get out of our book. All right. Well, that that's a great answer. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Obviously, there's so much more to explore in your book and in New York City. Uh, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you, Salman. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.